This morning we're uh, in Hebrews chapter 4, beginning uh, in verse 3. And I must uh, tell you, man, this, uh, this is one of the most difficult parts of the book of Hebrews. Um, so you, you definitely are going to need that sheet that I handed out today, and also the sheet from last week. There were two sides of that, the, the one that looks like this. Because the theme of this section, verses 4, chapters 4, uh, really 3 through 11, once we're past verse 11, uh, he's beginning to move into another subject. The key term in this paragraph is rest. Now, when you and I hear the word rest, or we think of rest, it's a good night's sleep, or you know, going out in the backyard in a summer afternoon in your hammock and taking a nap, or you know, all those different scenarios you can envision. For a Jewish person, when you talk with them and they speak of the word rest, they'll probably think of the word Shabbat, Sabbath, Sabbath rest. Jesus Christ, in, and I wrote the passage here in Matthew chapter 11, he is coming to the end of a, uh, a time of discussion with the Pharisees, and he's about to move into a time of real confrontation with them. But after... Uh, giving a series of woes or statements of judgment to the various cities in Galilee, he says, Come unto me, all you who labor, and I will give you rest. My burden is light. My yoke is easy, he says. Now again, you, you, you think of that. What, what, what would that mean to a Jewish person in Galilee in AD 32 when they hear Jesus say those words? How are they understanding that? And the author of this book is writing about the term rest. And it's so difficult for you and me because we're not Jewish. We don't have the traditions and background that are associated with it. So if you look at this sheet that I gave you last week, in the paragraph that we're about to study, he's going to use the term rest in three ways. First of all, the Sabbath rest, and I'm not going to read all this to you, you can read it on your own, but Sabbath rest, which is easy for us to understand, it's the Lord God created all things, in Genesis 1, the Lord God created all things, and on the seventh day he rested. It doesn't mean he took a nap, it just means he ceased from his activity. And then, now I know you know this, but I'm just going to keep talking, then when God sets up his moral law, he establishes a sacred day in the week of the Jewish person. So that the way God created the universe in terms of the model, six days, seventh day rest, is now to be the model for you, my people, as you organize your life. You labor six days, and the seventh day is a day of rest. And it's not a day where you take a nap, it's a day of engaging worship of God. And there are a number of things that would be that would be a part of that. There are certain prayers and rituals and all of those things that are just a part of observing Shabbat, of, of observing Sabbath. The other thing about Sabbath rest is, and this is a very important sentence, it was the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. It was the most important aspect of a Jewish person's life. 
Now, I've been to Israel many, many times in my life. And when I am in Israel and it's the Sabbath, that day is very different than any other day we're there. We're usually there two days uh, during the tours that I would lead. The elevators don't work, except for Gentiles. The elevators, if you're a Jew and you go on there, there are always several elevators, it's, it's automatically stops at every floor because if you lift your finger and press a button, you're working. So you don't do that. You take the Shabbat elevator. And we always would tell people, don't take the Shabbat elevator. If you're on the 34th, 34th floor, it's going to take you about 40 minutes to get to your room because it just stops at every floor. It's really something. So that idea of Shabbat rest, Sabbath rest, is very important to the Jewish mindset, still is today, particularly and especially for the Orthodox Jew, but even for the Reformed Jew. Okay. The second one on that sheet is Israel's rest in Canaan. This is not as well uh, known or thought of. It certainly isn't among Gentile Christians. But the idea of resting in the land, God had promised to Abraham in Genesis 12, 7, I'm going to give your descendants land. And then God keeps repeating it, repeating it, repeating it, repeating it. Finally, under Joshua's conquest, they get the land. And then, if you've ever studied the end of the book of of Joshua, he divides the land into the 12 land grants. And each one has a border and so on. They're at rest in the land. Now, that doesn't mean they cease activity and take it. No, they're going to work very hard. But the, the, the rest is the fulfillment of God's promises, his covenant promises. The third one on that list is the future rest, the rest of heaven. Another place in the Bible, and we're going to see that even in this text, we'll call it new covenant rest. And this is ceasing, uh, resting in the sense of ceasing from the struggle with sin. The struggle with sin's over. We're at rest in the glorified, promised, uh, eternal life with God and, and all of those, those wonderful promises. Now, I just spent about two or three minutes reviewing that sheet. Is anything I just said unclear to you? Because if you don't understand what I just said, you're not going to understand what the author's talking about. Because he's going to refer to all three of these. So, you all clear? Mm-hmm. I was just talking to Richard about this. Psalm 95. It's quoted quite a bit in this passage, correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, the end of it, it's, it talked about uh, people going astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Is that like eternal? Rest That's a great question. That is really a great question. It has two applications, and I'm going to really impress you here. It's a double entendre. Aren't you glad I told you that? It has two applications. An application to the Jewish people in the wilderness wanderings going into the promised land. What what I call there in the chart, the rest in Canaan. God fulfilling his promise of giving their land. But those who in, in the wilderness wanderings of 40 years, remember that? They were rebellious against God, did not trust God, and so on. They will not enter that rest. It will be their children and grandchildren that will enter into Canaan. But it also means the eternal new covenant rest. And the author is going to be applying that in both ways in this, this passage we're looking at. Woody, that is a really good question. You're thinking about this. And that's what I, I wanted you to do because he's using that very strategic Psalm, Psalm 91 
which the Jewish person would have been very familiar with, and causing these Jewish Christians to think about that double application of what that means. As some of the Israelites during the wilderness wanderings who were rebellious against God did not enter into that rest in Canaan, be very careful that you have adopted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior so that you can enter the new covenant, eternal rest. Because if you don't, you won't. Well, well, that was a really good question, and uh, because you're thinking it. All right, now, if you're not with me, I'm going to read this. And then when we're done, I want to go to this chart, and I want to go to the back side of that chart, this chart. And when we're all done, you should be one of the few group of evangelical Christians in the United States of America who really understand this passage. Because I'm telling you, a lot of them do not get this. And a lot of pastors, when they're preaching through Hebrews, just skip this. I'm serious, because it is very, you have to explain an awful lot for your people to really get it. And I, I don't want to skip anything in the Bible, so I'm doing the best I can possibly do to lay it out for you to understand it. And if you don't understand it, it's not my fault. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. All right, now, let's, let's take a look at verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest. What rest? The one that he mentioned in verse 1, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. That, now listen, that's the new covenant rest. The rest of eternal life. As he said, all as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. But you will because we believe. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now, why does he add that? He's saying, I'm not talking about the Sabbath rest. I'm not talking about the seventh day of rest about God. That's not what I'm talking about. You follow me? So he just adds that. I'm not talking about that. For he has somewhere said, spoken the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. But again, in this passage, meaning Psalm 91, they shall not enter my rest. I'm not talking about the rest of God on the seventh day. I'm not talking about Sabbath rest. That's what he's saying. Okay? I mean, he don't, he's just making, I want to make sure what I mean by rest. I'm not talking about the rest of God on the seventh day, which is the model for Sabbath rest. That's not what I'm talking about. Since therefore, verse 6, it remains for some to enter it, what's the it? the new covenant rest that he mentioned in verse 3 and verse 1, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The rest I'm talking about, the new covenant rest, the eternal rest, is still available. As a matter of fact, today's a day. If you haven't done it, do it. Do you see what he's doing? And he's quoting again from Psalm 95, one of the Psalms of David, and just saying, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Respond now. It's still time. You can still enter the new covenant, eternal rest of God. You see what he's doing? Three of you are getting it. All right. Now verse 8. He wants to make sure that they don't think he's talking about the rest of Canaan under Joshua. For if Joshua had given them rest, 
What rest? The rest of the new covenant. That's not the rest that Joshua gave them. God would not have spoken of another day later on. Right? When Joshua led them into the conquest of Canaan, and that conquest was completed, and they divided up the land among the the 12 tribes of Israel, they were at rest in the land. Had God given them the commandment of the Sabbath day rest by this time? Yes. Remember, Sinai occurs... In 1446 B.C., the conquest of Canaan is completed by 1399 B.C. So the Sabbath rest command has already been given. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has rested from his works as God did from his. Sabbath rest was still, again, I hope you don't get confused. Sabbath rest was still an operative rest for the Jewish people in the time of conquest. It was still a part of their life, modeled after God's creation pattern, six days, one day, you rest, seventh day you rest. Verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. What rest? Not the Sabbath rest, not the rest of, of, of the Israelites under the conquest of Joshua, but the new covenant rest, the eternal rest, the rest that Jesus later will talk about in the one I just quoted from Matthew chapter 11, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience, just like some in Israel, because of the disobedience and rebellion against God did not enter the promised land. You don't want to do that. You want to respond to the offer of new covenant rest in Jesus Christ, and, and enter that, be a part of that. How do I know that's true? How, how do I know that this is what God is offering me and this is the pattern of his development of rest? Because it's in the word of God. So he quotes in verse 12, one of the most quoted verses in the Bible on the importance of the word of God. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, of discerning thoughts and intentions of the heart. What a powerful statement of the word of God. It's important in our lives. It's living. It's active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It cuts deeply. I, I am almost positive every one of you in that room, this room has experienced that. We are reading the word of God and you're thinking about something and it just, it just cuts you. That's me. I, that's about me. It's talking about me. That's the way I am. Or the wonderful promises of God and the, the tremendous future that awaits all of us if we put our faith in Christ. That's talking about me. That's a promise God made to me. It, it, it's deep, it's profound, it cuts, it's discerning, and it unveils not only my thoughts, but my intentions, my motives, and my attitude. 
Jesus says, you heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say unto you, if you have evil thoughts, anger, hatred toward your brother, you're guilty. That's the word of God dealing with motives and intentions. That's just an example. So what the author is doing it, you say, well, why is he shooting this verse in here? Because all three of these rests are discussed in the word of God. And you want to make sure you understand that this new covenant rest is available to you now, today, up to verse 7. Today, respond today. Don't wait. Because the trustworthiness and discerning ability and capacity of, of the word of God is, is active and powerful. Don't neglect it. I just quoted from, this is the author speaking, I just quoted from it three times. As a matter of fact, we're in the fourth chapter and I've been quoting from the word of God in every chapter. It's a total of about two and a half dozen times. The word of God is really important. Don't ignore it. You see what he's doing? Because this appeal today is the day to respond. Is it based on the authority of the Word of God? So um, he's writing to Jewish Christians. Correct. Correct. I mean, and if they are Jewish Christians, at least positionally, they've already correct inherited this risk. Correct. So is he talking to them about experiential? Uh, I don't know what word experientially appreciating this risk. Uh, well, that'd be one way to put it. Yes, but with with this intent or this intended consequence, that you are going to now move on with Christ. Not go back, not be pulled back into the traditions and, and appeals of Judaism, but go forward now with Christ. Because this is now who you are. And if you haven't, because there would have been others in that community, if you haven't responded to this, today's the day to respond, which is what he appealed to to the non-believing Jews at that time. But the, the goal of the book of Hebrews, and we, you have to keep, that's what, uh, where's that other chart that I gave you? Well, we'll get to that. Those, those warning passages, there's, there are five of those. Those warning passages are to stimulate, encourage, and motivate, and push them hard to go forward, not backward. Another word we'll see over and over again is to persevere. You're talking about drift, doubt. Yeah, that one. That, yeah, we've done two so far. Two of the warnings. Yeah, so I mean, it, and, and you're, you're right. You can almost, you can get a little confused sometimes because he's referring back to ancient Israel and specific events in ancient Israel. But it is, it is they're Jews, and so look at that. Look what happened. They didn't trust in the word of God. When God said, I'm going to take you into the land, they said, we can't possibly go into that. Okay, well, then you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, and you're not going to go into the rest. Okay. I mean, it's just, he's trying to make sure the disciplinary hand of God will be upon you to motivate you to move on. And we're headed toward that in chapter 12 one of the great chapters in the Bible in the discipline of God. I hope I'm not confusing you in, in what I'm saying. I mean, it is, it, is, it is hard because he's trying to get these Jewish Christians who are very new in the faith to understand that everything's been fulfilled in Christ. Just set all that aside. It's no longer important. And move on with Christ. And that's really, the Sabbath rest, important. It's been fulfilled. Now you're looking toward new covenant rest. Sabbath rest isn't important to you anymore. 
The rest in Canaan isn't important to you anymore. The only rest that's important to you is the new covenant, eternal rest of God offered in Christ, through Christ. So, so is that the argument why they eliminated the blue laws? It's just not important. Now you're talking about colonial America, and, and, and yeah, okay, oh, wow. The, uh, oh, you're kidding. Okay. I'm kidding. Um, the verse six, kind of his question is where it talks about that. There's this. To me, I'm trying to find synonyms for rest. Where the the talk about cessation, you just stop mm-hmm. your labor, right? Um, the, the Israel and the Canaan is that you're established, you're grounded, you're not nomadic. There's next. There's an external piece to what you have. Mm-hmm. But this last one is that... You're, you're resting in the fulfilled covenant promises of God. Right. He's promised to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and everybody else. Now you're the ones who are going to... You're going to rest in the fulfilled covenant promises of God. And this last one is that, that spiritual piece. That's right. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Right. He is not talking about a good rest uh, after a hard day's work. He's talking about the rest from the struggle with sin. Because the Pharisees, the Pharisees have put on your shoulders an enormous burden of legalistic righteousness. You must do this and this and this and this. If you don't, you're not good enough for God and you're not going to take you to heaven. That is not what Jesus talks about. And so he's saying there's another path, not the Pharisaic legalistic righteousness, the path of grace that Jesus offers when you put your faith in him. It's a spiritual peace. It's a spiritual piece. It's another way, and we're going to talk about it in this way in just a minute. It is the end of your struggle with sin, which I don't know about you. I can get excited when I think about that. I mean that. I cannot envision what that's going to be like. To never, ever have an evil thought. To never, ever have a struggle with my, my motivations and attitudes. Never. Can you envision what that's going to be like? That's what he's talking about here. It's that rest that God is offering. Okay. Now one more verse. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all the naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Verse 13 is another aspect. Every human being is accountable to God. But if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, will you be called to account for your sin that will determine where you spend eternity? No, it's settled. It's settled. So, when he says for the word of God, is he referring to Jesus? Or he's referring to the Old Testament? Or he's referring to the whole Bible? Well, you and I are reading it in 2019, referring to the entire Bible, all 66 books, which, well, uh, to his readers in, you know, the AD 60s, which is when we think this was written, he, they would primarily understand the Word of God as the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, the histories, if they divide their, 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 uh, their Bible. But as... You know, as the canon, uh, the uh, authoritative word of God begins to include the New Testament books, which is not too many years after this was written, then that would just, and that's what Paul does in in 2 Timothy 3.16, written near the end of his life. He's including a lot of the New Testament books in that. But you and I understand it to mean all the 66 books of the closed canon of Scripture, 
So I don't know if I'm answering your question, but even that written verbal revelation helps us to understand the personal revelation of Jesus. Yeah, he might have referred to Jesus as the living word as well, and this is why we included the New Testament. Well, yeah, yeah, because it is the New Testament as it is written and um, circulated and recognized uh, that reveals to us in greater detail who all the Old Testament prophecies are referring to the coming Messiah, who he is, and what, why. Why can we say he's the Messiah? Because this is what he's done, this is what he said, this is what he accomplished, and this is his death, burial, and resurrection. So as Christians, we cannot ignore the Old Testament? Oh, no, no. Paul says that in first, I think it's chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, that the Old Testament is given to us to learn. Learn about God and learn from the Israelites. We don't want to make the same mistakes they did, in effect. Now, all right, any other questions? Are you, you know, this is, a, if you think you understand this with me, this is an amazing feat. So, I mean, do you, you think you have a pretty good idea? Because I want to turn to these handouts now. These handouts now. Okay? Now, in, in Israel, what, what the author has just done what the author has just done in this rapid survey of the Old Testament, this rapid survey of, of, of Israelite history, is he's moved from the Sabbath rest, which is based on the model of God as the creator. He created the universe in six days, the seventh day he rested. Then as you move into Exodus 20 with the giving of the law, that pattern becomes the pattern of life. That's the pattern for your life. Six days you work, seventh day you take off. You rest, Sabbath, Shabbat. Okay? Now, that then is extended into a very rather full and complete and comprehensive understanding of the worshipful dimension of Shabbat, Sabbath, and all you're to do during that day, Sabbath. You, you with me? And, and it, it becomes then finally that sign of the Mosaic Covenant. Shabbat was the sign of the covenant God made through Moses with Israel. The second rest he talks about is the rest in Canaan, the fulfillment of the covenant promises God had made. And God forms them as a nation as they come out of Egypt in 1446 B.C., he gives them the Constitution, the law at Mount Sinai, and then th- those things were all promised through Abraham for uh, 500 years earlier. Now he's about to take them into the land and fulfill the final promise, but they're pushing back. They say, we can't do this. We can't possibly defeat these people. They're Nephilim up there. Now Joshua and Caleb said, no, we're gone, and, and the rest said, we're not doing it. So God says, okay, you're not going to enter that rest. If you don't trust me enough, I told you I'm going to fulfill this promise. You're not going to trust me. Okay, well, you're not going in. It'll be your children and grandchildren that go in. You're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And so then what the author does is that generation that goes in experiences that rest of the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. And now they're resting in the land. That doesn't mean they're not working. Good night. They work very hard. That's not the point. They're resting in the fulfilled promises of God. But then the other rest that he was, and that's what we tried to single out, we'll call that New Covenant rest, which replaces the Old Covenant. That's a major theme coming up in the book of, of Hebrews. So I thought what I'd do then is compare 
these two rests. The Sabbath rest, which is central, very important, a defining element of a Jewish person in the Old Testament, and the New Covenant rest. New Covenant is an Old Testament idea. It's in Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, 37, and it's a huge issue in fulfillment in the New Testament material. Remember, even think of it in this way. When Jesus institutes the Lord's table in the upper room, remember what he says? This bread, this bread is, is my body, which is for you. And then he takes the, the cup of the Passover cup and he says, this is my blood of the new covenant. Remember that? Every time your pastor says communion, you should hear him say that. I hope. But, I mean, or something like that. But quoting from Jesus. So, you know, a, a Jewish, those, those 12 guys in the upper room hearing Jesus say that, but they're going to think immediately of Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, and 39. Immediately. And then they're going to start making all, well, I don't know if they did, but they should, and we do, start making all those connections in the Old Testament about the Lamb of God, about the, the atoning Lamb, on Yom Kippur, whose death and shedding of blood covers and atones for sin. All of those things. Well, Jesus, and you're going to see it coming up in the book, his atonement is once for all. Once Jesus completes that, and his resurrection is that we no longer have to go up to Jerusalem and offer sacrifices. We no longer have to raise herds of lambs, and we don't have to do that anymore. Jesus sacrificed once for all. So he inaugurated a new covenant. And that's what this is. So what I tried to do, let's just look at this. The old covenant is the rest of completed creation. Okay? We've talked about that. The sign of the Mosaic covenant. We talked about that. Delivered from bondage in Egypt. That is, as they go to Mount Sinai, that becomes such an important sign and symbol. And the rest of body and mind from normal work. The rest of body and mind from normal work. Focusing on worship, focusing on devotion, going through a lot of ceremonial traditions where your focus exclusively is on Yahweh Elohim, who created all things, delivered you from Egypt's bondage, set up you up as a nation, gave and all of those things. That's my God. And if you've ever seen, uh, oh, like Fiddlers on Fiddler on the Roof and uh, you know Tevye, they have the. It's almost a Sabbath. Sundown Friday, it's almost here, and they're all rushing around to get all dressed up. And, get, and then they have this quiet reflection. They light the candles. and Remember that? That's how it begins. And it's a day of devotion and focus on the Lord. All right, that's Shabbat. That's Sabbath. And, and when I was being Israel, and I was around Orthodox Jews, I'm telling you, you could hear a pin drop. It was absolutely silent. Nothing was going on. But then as soon as Saturday night sundown came, man, they go out and they have a wonderful meal. There's lots of loud singing. And joy. I mean, it's really something. I mean, it's just, that's, that's the normal. Order. But the new covenant rest replaces this rest. The rest of completed salvation. That's what Jesus is talking about. Matthew 11. The spirit is the sign of the new covenant in the Old Testament, and then fully developed in the New. When the New Covenant is mentioned, the Spirit of God is mentioned. 
They're inextricably linked. And so the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is a sign of this new order, this new covenant. Delivered from bondage to sin, the rest from the struggle with sin. And that is only, it begins, eternal life begins when you put your faith in Christ. But it's looking forward to that day when you go to be with him. And, and you know, to be absent by your presence with the Lord and your struggle with sin is over. You're now in, in, in the way of the Old Testament. You're in the bosom of Abraham. You're now enjoying the presence of the Lord and so on. That's new covenant rest. And the author is saying, you Jews who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, the rest I'm talking about is not this. And it's not this. I'm talking about this. And he's going to start developing that now. He's going to start developing and unfolding the all the multifaceted dimensions of the new covenant. And in the new covenant, do you know who your high priest is? Jesus. Do you know what the sacrifice is of the new covenant? It's the sacrifice that you make to God. Here I am, Lord, I'm available to you. I mean, it's just, it's the same language of the old, but it's all centered on the completed, finished, once-for-all work of Jesus on Calvary's cross. It's over. There's nothing more God needs to do in his redemptive plan. It's completed. It's done. Now we await the last, final element of that when we get our resurrected, glorified bodies, which is all wrapped around Jesus coming back for us. I saw a couple of hands, yeah. He wrote that book about the, about the covenants. And uh, a, I have the book. There's, there's a chapter in there on this I stuff. Really that's, you know, that's all right. Well, yeah, now I go through, I mean, that's a history of Israel, really. Uh, but I, I do talk about uh, very much the difference between these two covenants that we just quickly summarized. Very much so, yeah. And in the, in the chapter uh, that I have on Jesus, and uh, which the, what I try to do there is how all Jesus did fulfilled the Old Testament uh, the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and inaugurated the new covenant. I, that's part of what I talk about. That, absolutely. So, when did the Jews start uh, witnessing or observing the Sabbath? Is it started with Moses? Well, it, it's a part of the law. It's part of Mount Sinai. Um, so before well, Mount Sinai, there, well, there does seem to be. Um, it, it would not be connected to the Mosaic moral law of God revealed in the Ten Commandments and all the stuff in Leviticus. But there does seem to be some indication that there even, even before that there was an observance based on the creation model, six days of, of, of observing that as a special day, but not in the covenant sense that's a part of the law. Am I making sense in, in what I'm saying there? Yes, so before Moses, they witnessed the Sabbath not in a in a very strict way or very observant way or a very personal way as much as it was after Moses. Yeah, and even, I mean, they're, when they're in 430 years of bondage in Egypt, they're, mm -hmm. for the most part, particularly in the end, they're working seven days a week. They were working. I mean, long. yeah, I mean, there's not, um, you know, there's just, there, when I, even among some of the things with Job, there does seem to be an observance of that creation model. Six days of work, seventh day you take off, so to speak. 
but it, it, it's, it's really institutionalized as a part of the covenant relationship of the Jewish people of, the, of Israel with God in Exodus 20, which is you know, the Ten Commandments in the beginning, and then that's unfolded in great detail about the Sabbath. So it was very personal to them after the It becomes very, exactly. It becomes, when they reach the Holy Land. Uh, well, probably both, but I mean, it, it becomes more operatively uh, purposeful when they're in the land. Because then, you know, they gather as families. And, you know, Sabbath is a strong family time. More like in, in a clan, you know, to your extended family, but very strong family time. This isn't something you do as a nation you know, where the bell strikes and everybody in the nation, it's very much a part of the family and the father is to lead the children in this observance. And, so and for, for them, they're reaching the promised land and for us, it's reaching the promised land of forgiveness. Yeah, and in the promised land of eternity. He's going to talk about that in chapter 11. Now, Abraham and all these guys in the Old Testament, they're really looking for something greater than just the promised land. They're looking for a, a greater kingdom, and he's talking there about eternity. Just giving us a, an understanding that, that these great saints of the Old Testament are thinking from an eternal perspective, even in the Old Testament. And the covenant is not different from the gov- covenant to Abraham or to Moses? Like... Well, they're two different covenants, very different covenants. The Abrahamic covenant is the specific unconditional covenantal promises God makes to all of Abraham's children, all of his descendants, land, seed, and blessing. The Mosaic Covenant, that's a unilateral, unconditional covenant. The Mosaic Covenant is stipulating how these covenant people are to walk with God. And that is a conditional covenant. Because Deuteronomy 28, if you obey this, I will bless you in the land. If you do not obey this, I will curse you in the land, and if you continue in defiance against me, I'll send you into exile. But you always will be my people. Which is the Ten Commandments. The law. Uh, well, that's a summary of the law. Right, right. I think I'm answering your question there. <laughs> All right, Daniel. So, <clears throat> before Moses, uh, how did they knew about creation? How did they know about what was it? Mo- Moses wrote... Oh. Wrote Genesis and explains the whole creation thing. But before Moses, like Abraham and Job and all these people, how did they? Well, the best answer to that is there's a, a strong oral tradition that you you pass on the um, oh, what would be the right word uh, the account of creation uh, from children to grand to, you know children and grandchildren. I mean, you just keep passing it on. And there is that consistency. Our God, our God is the God who created all things. And um, that is Moses then, as as they are formed as the covenant nation of God after the Exodus, that begins to write all of these things down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as a comprehensive account of who God is, who they are, how they relate, and so on. Am I answering your question? Yeah. I, I mean, because I can't be any specific like that. Then I mean, Job, this is one of the really interesting things you study the Old Testament. Job is a contemporary of Abraham. And you read Genesis 12, you think, well, the only person on planet Earth that's really following God is Abraham. Nobody else on planet That's not true. 
That's not true. One of them, one other person, very faithful, was Job and his whole family. So it's just it's helping us to understand that there were many people on planet Earth who were followers of God, the true God. God chose Abraham for what purpose? To be the founder of the nation through which his son Messiah Jesus would come. I mean, that's part of you know, God selectively, on, based on his sovereign providence, he chooses Abraham. Could he have chosen Job? He could have chosen Job because Job lived at the same time Abraham. But he didn't choose Job. He chose Abraham. So, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's really a fascinating thing to, to read in some of those Old Testament texts. And, and you, you, you come across Moses, and you, you, you're introduced to this man in Midian who is going to be his father-in-law. And the idea you get when you read about him is he's a follower of the true God. He's a prince of Midian, but he's a follower of the true God. Well, how did he hear about him? What did he, because it, God always has a witness. That's one of the themes of, of the Bible. God always has a witness. There are always people that are responding to his witness. Remember, God reveals himself in creation, human conscience, his moral law, and Jesus. Each one insists on a response. And so as people respond, God sends more detailed revelation, and you know, they begin to walk in faith with him. Uh, so when we talk, for me as a pastor, when I talk about Old Testament, sometimes I, I think I struggle with how how can I present it, the idea of, yes, the, the saying of it was um, a conditional one where you need to obey to get blessings, and if you disobey, you curse. But then sometimes because of tradition and everything, we carry that into the new covenant where people feel like, well, I need to be obedient and God is going to bless me, but if not, if I'm not obedient, that's why bad things happen to me or that's why I'm getting saved or whatever. Right. Uh, so how do we, how do we, what is the best way to explain that difference between Old Testament and New Testament? Well, it is important, first of all, first of all, to remember that the old, the old, the Mosaic Covenant. Now, this is really an important sentence. The old Mosaic Covenant is not how you got saved. The Mosaic Covenant is how you walk with God. How are you saved by putting your faith in God? Uh, this is Paul's argument in Romans four or Galatians three. Romans four is really developed. He he's trying to prove Paul. In Romans, that you're justified, declared righteous, saved by faith. Okay, are there two ways? An Old Testament way and a New Testament? No, 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 no. He says, how was Abraham saved? Genesis, in chapter 4 of Romans, he quotes it four times. Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So what's he saying? Abraham, use New Testament words. Abraham was saved by faith. Okay, so then how was, let's move forward 500 years. How was Joe and Josephine Israel in the promised land that they just got from God under Joshua, how are they saved? They're saved by faith. They believed in the promises of God. How do they walk with God? Mosaic covenant. Let's do it another way, Daniel. Justification is always by faith. Always, 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 always by faith. Sanctification is how you walk with God. The Old Testament, sorry, the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, is about sanctification. 
not justification. The other thing that's crucial to remember is that the shift from the old to the new is accomplished by Jesus. And the key word that Matthew uses this word, the key word is fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled the old Mosaic covenant, completed it perfectly. It's done. It's over. It's completed. Now the new covenant. And so the important thing to get across, and this is really important, if you're not careful, you can become like a Pharisee. Well, you turn the Mosaic covenant into legalistic righteousness, just like some people do in 2019 who call themselves evangelical Christians. They turn their own convictions into legalistic tenets of righteousness. I grew up in an era to go to a movie, you were considered to be not saved. I remember a man saying that. If you go to a movie, you're not saved. Now, without getting into whether you should go, that has nothing to do with salvation. God is not sitting up in heaven and said, Jim just went to a movie, he's out. He's done. That's not, I mean, I'm putting it so ridiculous, but listen, salvation is by grace through faith plus nothing. Just like it was for the Old Testament saint. By grace, through faith, plus nothing. Then how does the Old Testament saint walk with God? Through the Mosaic Covenant. You walk in faithful obedience and trust in God. And he's going to take care of you. How's my sin taken care of in the Old Covenant? The lamb who dies, blood is shed, atones for my sin. Do you see? I mean, that's how you start to explain this. So it'll take you four months to explain it, but that's how you start to explain it to people. But it, you're raising that. It's a huge question. That is a very huge question. These guys, they totally understand it now. They, there's no ambiguity. In their, they totally get it. So to, to add to his question, how do we... How do we pick and choose which of the Levitical laws that are there that we still abide by as, as Christians? Well, I think the, the, the key is the, the ethical standards that are reflected in the law, which are really, really manifestations of God's character. The best thing, I, I've written a book on ethics, I've, teach, I've taught ethics for 30 years. Um, I use the Ten Commandments as a set of key ethical principles. Sure. Thou shalt not lie, the sanctity of truth. Thou shalt not steal, the sanctity of private property. Thou shalt not kill, the sanctity of human life. I mean, they're the ethical principles that transcend a particular point in space-time history. This is God revealing himself to humanity. And so the Ten Commandments become ethical absolute principles for how we live our lives. They're as, they're as relevant to the Jew in 1400 B.C. as they are to you and me in 2019. Was private property important to the Jew? Yeah, because the land grants that were given to them, once they entered into the land, no other nation on earth was doing what they were doing. They were assigning boundaries. This is property that belongs to me. This is my family's inheritance in this clan, in this tribe. That's mine. No other nation on earth had anything like that. The sanctity and stewardship of private property given by God. That's the important word, stewardship. And you, you see what I'm saying? So those things are applicable. What is not applicable is don't boil a goat in its mother's milk. That has absolutely no relevance to us today. That's a pagan Canaanite practice that Jews are not supposed to observe. 
I'm using a ridiculous example. Well, yes, yes, but no. I mean, there's all sorts of neat thing. I call them neat things that are in the in Leviticus in particular. And often they're very specific, related to something the pagan Canaanites all around them are doing. Don't do that. You're separate from that because you're my people. So, in the old covenant, what was the ultimate promise? God had promised Abraham and his descendants this land, the promised land. That's the Abrahamic covenant, right. Right. That's the Abrahamic covenant. Also promising rest to the Jews then, so that when Joshua went in... That, that, yes, that's correct. That's part, I mean, that resting in the land is part of Genesis 12, 7. That's correct. But was that supposed to carry over to the modern day Jew then? Uh, yes, in this sense. Uh, these are great questions. How are you guys thinking so much today? You're supposed to be tired, not thinking anymore. Um, that land is the land that God promised. And you read in Genesis, God looks at, he gives you the boundaries of the land he's promising to Abraham from the Euphrates down to the river of Egypt. And that is an unconditional Guaranteed promise by God to the Jewish people. That's their land by covenant. But God said, now that's the Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic covenant. For you to abide and prosper in the land I'm giving you, you must walk with me. And the Mosaic covenant is how you walk with me. But if you choose not to walk with me according to this, I'll discipline you. And it may even involve sending you into exile, which he did. But in the prophets of the Old Testament, God keeps saying to them, I'm sending you into exile, but then what's the next sentence? But I will bring you back. I'm getting real animated here. But I mean, that you're asking these huge mega questions. That's the only way to deal with it. So at, at the end of chapter 3 here, my translation says, Who are they who heard rebel? Were they not those that led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest if they disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Well, it was because of their sin, wasn't it? And how does this tie and the sin, with unbelief? Well, it, they still believe in God. Yeah, but unbelief has, has a, a variety of specific meanings to it. Okay. Un- unbelief can result from doubt. I'm from doubt. I'm not trusting. God said to that group that came out of Egypt, I'm giving you the land. I freed you from Egypt. I've given you the, con- the your constitution, the law. Now I'm going to give you your land. You ready to go in? No. We're afraid. We can't go into the land. Moses sent the 12 guys up, and two of them are saying, yeah, we can do it. The other 10 are saying, there are giants in that land. These people are wrong in fortified cities. There's no way we can take it. And God said, all right, do you really believe that? Is that really? So you're doubting me. You're not trusting in me. You're not believing me. And so 10, and therefore the vast, 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 vast majority of the 2.3 million that left Egypt said, that's right, we're siding with the 10. And God said, okay. Then those of you who are adults, you're going to die in the wilderness. Okay, then when we get into verse or chapter 4 here, verse 2, for we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did. 
but the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Is that referring back to the people wanting? That's right. That's right. Okay, but what was the good news to well, them? The, it wasn't the, Jesus Christ. Well, the, the, but the specific content of the good news for them in 1440 B.C. was, I'm the God of the covenant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I promised them land. I'm about to give you the land. You with me? You trust me? I'm going to fulfill that promise. <gasps> no, they're never leaving the land. We can't possibly go up. So you don't trust me. You don't believe me. I mean, that's really what God said. You don't believe me. You don't believe, and I'm going to take you into the land. Did you see what I did in Exodus? Did you see what I did to Egypt? Did you see what I did to Pharaoh? Did you? He's the most powerful human being on earth. Did you see what I did to him? And you're afraid of these Canaanites? So you don't believe me. That's right. We don't believe you. Okay, then you're not going to enter the rest. You're not going to go into the land. Your children will go into the land. Got it? So the warning is now with the new covenant. That's right. We better not make the same Don't mistake. doubt what he referred to it. Don't doubt God's word. Okay. When God says something, trust him. Believe him. John's getting it. All right. I'm done. We're moving into verse 14. I, I know this is hard, but I, I mean, I did a lot of work trying to pull a lot of things together to make it as simple as I possibly could. So now you all can write a thought paper on the various meanings of rest in 4, 3 through uh, uh, 13. And it would be wonderful papers to read. But you're all dry breathing a sigh of relief saying, boy, I'm really glad he didn't mean that. So, All right, now, and you'll see this in your, your notes if you have your outline, you'll follow that. But we're now moving into a fantastic part of, uh, I mean, a fantastic part of, of the book of Hebrews. The theme of Jesus as our high priest. Now, as we get started with this, now I think all of you have a little enough of, of, of information and knowledge about this. In ancient Israel, who is a high priest? I don't want to name here, but who is a high priest? What, what was a high priest's responsibility? What, what did they do? The ark, the they lead the sacrifices and make sure all the sacrificial system is in place. Um, they, they would have a, a segment of the Levites that responded to them and responsible to them, of teaching the law to the people. I mean, the high priest was the, the one who intercede between God and the people. So there was only one high priest or multiple? There was one high priest. The high priest. There's the, the high priest. There's like there's a whole hierarchy. I mean, that isn't really important for us to go into that. But there's like a hierarchy because there are different levels. You know, there are different... Um, responsibilities that all of the many priests, there, there, were, there were the Levitical cities in the land. The high priest was responsible for all that. But the primary thing, and I think it was Joel who just said it, was overseeing the sacrifices and, and over, overseeing the importance of Passover, overseeing the importance of all that that meant in the atonement for sin. So here's the question. If the rest... That is being discussed in this previous paragraph that we just finished. And the old covenant is fulfilled and completed. Does that mean the high priest office is gone? Yeah. 
That's a major question you can understand. A first century Jew would ask that. Do you mean there's no high priest? And the author is saying, yeah, there is a high priest in the new covenant. It's Jesus. Jesus is now your high priest. Now, if that if you get that sentence, that's the thesis of the next several chapters that he's going to develop. Jesus Christ is the high priest of the new covenant. He intercedes for you. He's the mediator for you. He's completed and fulfilled the old covenant. He's inaugurated the new covenant. It is in him everything that God promised is going to be fulfilled. He is, the he is that's right. He doesn't so he doesn't implement and facilitate the sacrifices. He is the sacrifice. So that's right. Well, yeah. I, I mean, he's going to be developing other he's the prophet, he's the king. I mean, all of these major roles uh functions and roles that Jesus plays. But you're not going to need any others. He's done it. Now he just opens with this fantastic statement. Since then we have present tense. It's not past tense. It's not since then we will have. It's present. It's a continuous present. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. What's that referring to? Ascension. Pardon? His ascension. He's referring to his ascension. Right? He ascended from earth into the heavens to be seated at the right hand of God the Father. So since he passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, see those different titles, high priest, Jesus, Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Now hold fast. Some of your translations, I, I, I'm not sure if I can remember, some of your translations, one of your translations may have persevere. Persevere. Endure. Hang in there. Don't give up. Hold fast to what? Our confession. Now that's a good translation, our confession, but when you hear the word confession, you're thinking, well that means when I tell God that I sin, I ask for his forgiveness. That's not what it means. Confession can also mean in English, the English word confession, a body of truth that we believe. Like, you know, the Apostles' Creed, and some of your churches may recite that, or the Augsburg Confession, or the Heidelberg Confession, I mean, they're all historic confessions of the church. It's, it's what we believe. Let's hold fast, let's persevere about our beliefs, our confession. Who to who? To you, who is Jesus? What has he done for you? He is our high priest who's passed through the heavens. She is the right hand of God the Father. Jesus, the Son of God. That's our confession. Hold fast to that. Got it? Mm-hmm. So what's he introducing? This key question that a Jewish Christian in about A.D. 60 who's confused about the old covenants and traditions and everything that defined them for 1,400 years, now that's all fulfilled. Okay, new covenant, got that, I understand that now. Who's my high priest in the new covenant? Oh, that's a very easy question to answer. It's Mm -hmm. Jesus. Mm -hmm. The high priest of the old covenant, all that he had to do, 
You know, that's all fulfilled in Jesus is our high priest. Seated at the right hand of the Father. Ascended. The Son of God. So it's a fantastic description. And then look, look at what he says. For do not, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So he's saying to us, and I've got to stop with this, he's saying to us, and think of what this would have meant to a first century Jewish person struggling with their identity now. Your high priest can identify with you when you're tempted. Your high priest, in every respect, he knows what it's like to be tempted. Was Jesus enticed to do something evil? Yeah. But he didn't do it. Yet without sin. So what is the author doing? And I really must quit. He's setting us up to understand. Don't confuse the high priest of the old covenant with the high priest of the new covenant. They're not the same. This is a perfect high priest. Absolutely perfect. He can identify with you. He's going to intermediate. He's going to be your mediator. He's going to be your intermediate. He's going to pray for you. But he's not like your high priest of the old. He's without sin. Now, we sort of get excited when we start doing something like this, but i got to quit. All right, thank you. Uh, I told my wife, honey, I have to deal with a section that's really hard. I don't know if these guys are going to get it. So I'm going to leave this morning thinking you've got it. All right, four of you agreed. Okay. I hope so. I, so I gave you these notes. I hope that helped. We're going to be dealing with this next couple of chapters, just wonderful chapters. I hope they'll be a blessing to you. Lord, thank you for the truth of the book of Hebrews. And I thank you for your goodness to me. I was a little concerned about how to get this across, about the rest and what really the author is trying to do here. I hope through your Holy Spirit that uh, you enabled us to grasp the importance of new covenant rest, the rest that the author is talking about, the rest that Jesus offers us in responding to the gospel truth. Thank you, too, that... We do have a high priest in the new covenant. It's Jesus. But he's not like the high priest of the old who's just a human. He's a high priest who can identify with us, knows what it's like to be tempted, but he's absolutely perfect. He's without sin because he's Jesus, the Son of God. So we praise you for that. We look forward for our continued study in this majestic text about Christ as our high priest. It's exciting material that we're going to be studying in the weeks to come. Thank you for these men. Take care of them as they go separate ways. May they be a source of blessing to others, and may they represent you well. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. See you next week.